0: Hi, and welcome to the 52nd episode of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This month, we're talking to Damien Williams. We made this recording on the 3rd of February, 2021. We chat about types of human and algorithmic discrimination, human technology expectations and norms, problems with government benefit services that use algorithms, the contextual nature of sample data, is facial recognition even a good idea at all, being honest about problems in your system, should we be scared about GDP3 taking all our jobs, encoding values into autonomous beings and AI and dogma. You can find more episodes from us at machine-ethics.net. You can contact us at hello at machine-ethics.net and you can follow us on Twitter at machine underscore ethics and Instagram machine ethics podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. And thanks again for listening. Uh, Damien, thanks for joining me in the podcast. Um, It's awesome to see you again and to have this conversation. So if you could quickly introduce yourself, who you are and what do you do?
1: Uh, My name is Damien Patrick-Williams. I'm a PhD candidate at Virginia Tech. Uh, My research is in the area of values, bias, algorithms, AI, and uh, generally uh, how human values intersect with influence and are reflected in the technologies that we create.
0: Um thank you very much and um uh, there's a question that we always ask at the head of the podcast uh which I'm I'm pretty sure you actually might have uh, previously answered um on another podcast uh, because we met um at a AI retreat which sounds a bit fancy now and to be honest it was fancy <laughs> I'm...
1: it was very fancy <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm missing it
0: now uh, we were just we were just chatting no. about it briefly um yeah, so the brilliant Andy Budd uh, put us and lots of other people together to talk about AI and ethics and stuff in a um, lovely hotel in Norway, and that was maybe coming. It was two and a half years ago, something like that. Yeah, yeah a while ago. Yeah. Um, wow. So um, there is a podcast episode on that which I uh, I will refer to at the end because I can't remember which one it is. Mm-hmm. What is AI, Damien? <laughs> Um, To you, like, what is this stuff that we talk about AI?
1: Um, To me, the question of what is AI is always really interesting because a lot of what I'm very interested in is exactly that weird untangling of what is AI, right? Like, because everybody I talk to uses it differently. So for me, AI is both the automated algorithmic applications that we use to kind of uh, supplement and enhance and uh, otherwise... uh, I guess, uh, support the activities of human intelligence in everyday life, but it's also that kind of bigger, broader, large-scale uh, dream and aim of AI, that, co- that kind of artificial general intelligence, or uh, as I like to think of it, that kind of uh, automated generative intelligence, that, that machine consciousness, that machine intelligence that is itself capable of independent, autonomous generative, intelligent thought. And that is a dream that I think we still have not yet fully reached. It's a dream that I think is starting to kind of fade to the background in a lot of AI discussions as that kind of first definition is more and more attainable and more people kind of go with it. And they're like, yeah, we can kind of make supplements. We can make patches that help other people do their day-to-day stuff. So let's just keep doing that. Uh, And that idea of, but what about a what about a conscious machine has kind of faded to the background
0: yeah, awesome and i th- I believe while we last spoke just uh, just so much passion uh, coming out from you and obviously the the setting was very different um and we had yeah. um some really good conversations there um of yeah. some of which I was able to capture, which is great i'm yeah. I'm really interested in talking to you um about lots of things um and, and some of those things are about the cult, cultural artifacts, right? You were talking about, you know, how yeah. do we untangle these sort of things? Um, what the values that we kind of put on these types of technologies, but also kind of what are the things that we want to get out of this? And AGI, you know, yeah. is one of those dreams that we have, um, general intelligence. Yeah. Um, but also there's like this other stuff uh, to do with a lot of the kind of uprising that happened last year around, um, you know, black and... Uh, different minorities um, across the world, you know, and how um, technologies can be discriminative and um, oppressive in some ways. So I was wondering if we could start like with that one and then we bridge over to the cultural stuff. So um, what are the forms of discrimination that AI can take?
1: So it's interesting because the forms of discrimination that AI can take are pretty much all the forms of discrimination that humans can do, (laughs) plus some ones that we never really anticipate. Um, And so what ends up happening in most algorithmic and AI applications is that ultimately we find ourselves in a place where the idea of what we think we're trying to do, the the application that we're trying to to figure out, kind of takes precedence, and we don't really think about what it is we're telling the program to do. (laughs) And so if we have uh, in those... You know the, the design phase and the coding phase and the programming and and in the implementation, if we have certain biases that we are unaware of, or that just go uninterrogated for any number of reasons, then they will make their way into, you know, the actual implementation of these programs. This is what the things that we found. So we can see gender discrimination in terms of uh, gender discrimination based on names, based on um, the perception that uh, the, the you know. Uh, of what types of words are associated with what types of genders. And then we have racial discrimination. And we see that most often uh, played out in facial recognition, uh, automated camera technologies, any type of, uh, even in just basic light readers. <laughs> like we have you know photo measurement systems that are automated that don't read darker skin well. And that's been true for decades now. We also have, in terms of, you know, certain applications take those types of applications and kind of play them out further. We have problems with, say, um, AI applications of facial recognition on the transgender community or of you know body type readers, body scanners on the, the transgender and the disabled community. Um, body scanners, the, the big stand-up body scanners in the, the airport, um, if they happen to read something, they read uh, or they deem as non-standard or as anomalous, then they will flag that person for, you know, extra pat-downs or, you know, extra scrutiny. And one of the ways that that happens is if the human on the other side of the screen presses a button that says that the gender they perceive that person to be is something, and what the scanner reads is for any number of reasons anomalous, then that person will get flagged. Transgender individuals are harmed by this, but also not even just in terms of the gender aspect, but also in terms of just what a body is quote-unquote supposed to look mm-hmm. like aspect. If someone has, say, an ostomy bag, a colostomy bag or your urinalysis bag um, that allows them to use the restroom because they've had surgery on their lower intestine or their kidneys, um, that is not a thing that a body scanner knows how to understand. And if the person who sees that shape which is flagged as anomalous and rests right at about hip level Mm. where a weapon might be, they're going to perhaps a bit more aggressively pat that person down and they are going to perhaps cause the contents of that bag to expel themselves onto the person being patted down. And I say perhaps, what I mean is that's actually happened several times. Mm. So in all of these places, we have... Certain expectations about what a body should look like, what a person should be, how a person should behave, um, normative types of expectations of, of should and, and right kind, right? And all of these things have been encoded into the systems, both the actual technological systems, the artifacts themselves, but also into the technosystem relationship between humans and those systems, and how humans are expected to relate to those systems, how they're expected to use those systems. The expectations that the humans have in mind when they're using it, the expectations that the systems have encoded into them, then create that kind of feedback loop where they go, oh, well, this is what I'm supposed to expect here, and this is how I'm supposed to behave when that expectation is met, and so this is what I'm supposed to do in this situation without ever really interrogating, why might this be different? What might be happening here? What haven't we been told to expect? what might this mean about a human being's way of living in the world that I didn't get told to expect, that this machine wasn't programmed to expect? And so those are just a few a smattering of the ways that these things can kind of, like, go very, very wrong. Um, The, like, long-term, big-picture stuff, one of the things that I've been really kind of invested in recently is disability rights benefits here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. are often, in, in many localities and states, they are... Uh, administered by algorithm uh, and those algorithms are often black boxed they are, you know their internal functions are hidden from the people whose you know lives their decisions are affecting and many like the ACLU um, the American Civil Liberties Union here in the US has had to like sue to like on behalf of disabled patients mm-hmm. and and you know they, to say We need to be able to see what's going on inside of this because it made a decision about my benefits that reduced my benefits drastically year on year for reasons that I fundamentally don't understand when my situation hasn't changed. So that's, yeah, like these are life and death kind of things that happen every day and all of these systems have been kind of proliferated widely from this kind of base uninterrogated state, right? And so, all of those perceptions, all of those assumptions, all of those potential biases have made their way into all of those systems.
0: Mm-hmm. And it, it it seems odd to me because obviously, you know, you and I, and lots of people who we have on this podcast, we we think a lot about this sort of stuff. But it seems um, kind of antithetical that people would just put in an algorithm and go, "Okay, well, your, you know, your benefit payments have changed." and there's nothing you can do about it right uh, like yeah. um so that, that sounds like a, a bad situation from the get-go right um yeah so it is yeah um so i i mean i hope that people are waking up to kind of the stupidity of the this fact and obviously we can't uh always account for like all the unintended consequences but we we better like account for as many of the consequences and the impacts and harms right. that we these systems produce because, you know, um, you know, that that instance that you described is quite a high impact thing, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly that uh, and you're not gonna impact like, like the normal people, like in the way that you are talking about um the 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 scanners as well, right? Like if you if you look normal to the scanner or like you know, the distribution of whatever your body shape is correct. Like right. <laughs> then yeah. if the
1: if the scanner sees that as quote unquote, that's A OK, yeah, like uh, that's that is the quote unquote like that's the normative frame, right? Like that's the the thing it's been told to
0: accept. Yeah. So you you if you're you're like targeting the people who are like non-conforming to whatever this data set is, right?
1: Precisely that. And that's the thing that like in a in a number of ways, you know, when when this gets talked about, when you know defenses are made for it. That's the kind of answer that gets given is like people are saying, oh, well, you know, we're just trying to find the, the kind of normal distribution of what people look like. And that, quote unquote, normal distribution of what people look like, that is very contextual. <laughs> like, what is your, what is your, you know, your sample size? What is the the distribution of that sample? What is, you know, what, what is the context in which you are sampling? Like, how are you how are you pulling all of these things together and making what you then, you know, average out to be your, your normal distribution? Um, because what that looks like and what you've taken into account, as you said, at that, you know, at the outset, what you've tried to, to account for in the first place is gonna change what your actual end set looks like. And if that data set has that kind of, that lacuna, that, that, that occultation of, you know, I didn't think to think about this, I didn't think to think about people who exist in the world in X, Y, and Z kinds of ways, then the data set will, in fact, be preemptively discriminatory against those people. And it will, in fact, punish people who are not conforming to what you probably unconsciously, as a programmer, decided was quote-unquote normal. Like that's, and that's going to be a thing that, like, again, has wide-ranging implications for a lot of people down the line. But if again, if you if you're not thinking about it at the outset, if you're not conscious of well, maybe I should be thinking about these other cases, or maybe I should be asking what I haven't thought about, mm-hmm. then you're not going to have that moment of you know taking a step back and trying to refigure what it is you've done. Um, and in some cases, there's just no good way to kind of fix that, mm-hmm. right? There's no good way to to like to come in and, and retag that, and that's like with things like facial recognition uh, software and, and how they get used for uh, police actions. Like that's, I can't think of good ways that that turns out to be, like even if you were to say train facial recognition to do a better job of tagging people's faces you know, with darker skin tones, you're still dealing with the fact that facial recognition on the overarching uses of pretty much all of it that facial recognition is most often used against people in minority communities. They're used against black and brown individuals at a higher rate in Western society because those communities have been preemptively deemed not by the technology itself, but by the people using that technology Mm. as criminal. (laughs) So, So, like, excuse me, um... Yeah. These are, and these are all the, the things that kind of go into exactly what you were talking mm. about there.
0: And I wonder, I've got like a um, devil's advocate question here for the face recognition stuff, because um, you alluded to mm-hmm. um, just before we went on, on air that Amazon have, got, um, <laughs> have made an announcement about this too. Um, but if the distribution was, uh, you know, more sympathetic to a larger group um, mm-hmm. of people and... Maybe the environment of um, criminal activity wasn't so biased in the states as it has yeah. been historically. Is face recognition still a good idea? <laughs> like,
1: so, like that's like that's the the fundamental kind of. For face recognition to be a good idea, like the antecedent conditions mm. have to all be yeah. drastically different, yeah. right? Like, it has to be the case that you're not in a scenario where uh, minority communities are primarily targeted by police action at the outset, where they're primarily assumed to be criminal. Where they are primarily assumed to be criminal because they are, by history, immigrant populations or enslaved populations that were targeted as criminal and, you know, propagandized as. like as criminal from Inclination Mm, from birth, right? Like this was this was the, the propaganda that got wheeled out in the States About why black people needed to remain enslaved is because they couldn't be trusted on their own or why Mexican immigrants needed to be you know ostracized to the edges of society because they were by definition um, you know, endemically lazy, endemically criminal, uh, why, you know, Chinese populations couldn't be trusted because, you know, they were inscrutable and, you know, this whole mm-hmm. kind of, you know, sneaky Asian stereotype that gets, you know, pushed into all of that, right? Like, all of these things are so thoroughly woven into the kind of fundamental fabric of facial recognition of, policing in general which uses facial recognition that to to make facial recognition a good idea is to say we have to go back in time and undo that like vast history of prejudice that kind of undergirds the policing in the context that uses it yeah as it stands another potential way that we could go forward with it would be to say We would have to, like, culture-wide interrogate all of those things. Confront them, like, full-on and say, here's what's happening. Here's what has happened for centuries. Now let's take a shot at undoing that, of repairing that damage, of uh, setting to Mm rights the vast systemic harms that have been caused by it. And then once that project is complete, yep. <laughs> we, can, we can have that framework of going, okay, now what do we do? Literally, what are we doing when we program a facial recognition AI, mm-hmm. an algorithm to say, tag a person in a crowd for quote-unquote suspicious behavior? Yep. Once that doesn't then, once that tag of suspicious behavior doesn't then carry... The full weight of, well, we've already determined that certain people from certain parts of the world or with certain ethnicities are de facto suspicious. Yep. <laughs> then at that point, once it doesn't have that woven into it anymore, then it can maybe be used in a way that isn't going to do vast, like, harms to justice. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Like, but it's, it's a much bigger project than just, you know. A lot of people do want to say that if we, just in, if we include more, you know, diverse data sets, then we can get something like a, a fairer output. The output may be fairer, but at the end of the day, what's going to end up happening is you're going to get a facial recognition camera that sees my face better and can definitely distinguish me from a crowd better. But it's still going to be used on populations that look like mm. me more often, yep. regardless of what those populations are actually up to in their daily lives.
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like you've got this really big lens and you're pointing it at the people who you expect to be, yep. you know. That's yep. exactly it. <laughs>
1: so and so like this is like the the kind of like lamp laws, like streetlight theory. It's like you're gonna find crime where you look yep. for it. And if you point at it. And you only look for it in one space and you're not finding, you know, like crime you kind of consciously expect to find, you're going to like engage as criminal behavior, any behavior that you find there. Yep. And so as that gets kind of reinforced and reinscribed over decades and centuries, then yeah, you get to this kind of perception where a certain population is always perceived as criminal, mm. always perceived as a threat, always perceived as dangerous
0: at the outset. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and I feel like we've painted a really um, bleak picture there, but I guess <laughs> <laughs>
1: it, it is I mean, there are some bleak elements definitely there's uh, there's some unfortunately like damaging uh, and potentially really big downsides, but there are people who are you know working to kind of do AI work who are working to to do algorithmic uh, work from a perspective that, specifically interrogates all of the questions that we've been talking about, right? Like, there are people who are trying to do work that says, okay, let's encode from the perspective of marginalized people at the mm-hmm. outset. Let's, like, let's, uh, like, Conte Dial uh, does work on uh, decolonizing AI, uh, and her work is is just utterly fantastic. It's really interesting stuff on just, like, how do we take the kind of cultural perceptions of what AI is and kind of you know dig down on those deconstruct those and then say what do we what are we doing as as like a culture Mm -hmm. (laughs) when we when we make these kinds of assumptions and how do we make different kinds of assumptions and there are people who are doing work on you know the implications of of autism and you know not neurodivergent populations and you know building from that perspective when building out automated systems and building out algorithmic implications or uh, instantiations so you've got people working uh people like os keys and their work on you know specifically interrogating fairness versus justice in the face of you know neurodivergent and disabled communities right and so we have people who are specifically trying to do this work and say it's not like the whole project of machine learning, the whole project of AI, the whole project of algorithmic you know, systems is toast. It's not that. The answer is we have to do better. Mm-hmm. And in order to do better, we have to be honest about what we've done poorly so far. We have to be real about what's gone wrong. And then once we do that, we can kind of unpack it all and say, okay, what do we want to do different? How do we move forward in a different way, in a way that doesn't continue to do active real harm to the people that it has traditionally done active harm mm-hmm. to? How do we do this in a way that allows us to, like, not just include people, but really truly represent them, to to really include them in a way that is kind of systemic, foundational, and fundamental, and and really genuinely honors who people are in the world and doesn't just try to, like appropriate a perspective from over here and slap it into you know, the coding of an algorithm and say, okay, well, we included that perspective mm. and now we move on. But how do we like actually truly have something that is encoded from deeper principles that include and account for and, and seek to do, you know, real justice for people who have traditionally been harmed by this mm-hmm. stuff.
0: So... <laughs> um let's do that i think um from my perspective this area has really blown up right so yeah i feel like maybe five years ago it was completely unknown or like a a burgeoning thing that um automation was problematic and we started seeing some things happening in industry that made it more obvious that that could be the case um Right. And then a few years after that, we just had this, well, actually, like from then on, we had questions. We just had lots of questions. How can this go wrong? Those like, right. you know, how, how is this um, possible to go wrong? What kinds of things go wrong? That sort of thing. And then we had all these principles. Right. <laughs> we spent about two years across the whole world making principles um, for better or worse. And I'd like to talk to you yep. about that. Uh, and I feel like now, um, again, from my point of view, we've kind of, we get into the point where we are have to, we're having to make this practical implementation side like okay mm-hmm. well maybe we should think about this like in this new implementation we're going to apply some machine learning over here and it's going to be for this thing and these people are going to be impacted by this thing hopefully in a positive way because you know why are we going to be doing right. this in the first place but maybe we haven't thought about right. the impact on you know these other group over here who are not you know and all this sort of stuff and i feel like that's happening now is that kind of the the, the perspective that you you kind of see
1: yeah the, the yes, definitely the fact that like more and more people have really started to dig down on this idea of how exactly do we deal with you know all of the the unintended consequences of the things that we thought we were doing right and that we realized we hadn't hadn't accounted for and then we had to rethink and then we had to redo and that kind of constant back and forth is is definitely like been the scope over the past several years where people have like built this, Greater awareness that isn't just within the community, or just from people outside of the community looking in, going, "Hey, what about this stuff over here?" But like the community and you know uh, researchers external to the community and the the policy community, like politics, are actually politicians are, are starting to really get a sense of how all of this works and what needs to be accounted for, what needs to be thought about mm-hmm. in the process of doing this work. And so I do definitely think that that is that wider awareness is kind of the constant thing right now. And I'm glad of it. I'm very, very glad of it. But at the same time, one of the problems of that wider awareness is the kind of misperceptions that can come along with that um, and the expectations that the fixes can be simple Mm -hmm. so like you and i and you know the people that you've talked to on this podcast and the people that we work with and people who research this people who've been in this community for you know mumbledy numbers of years (laughs) we know that these things even when we recognize the problem that they require like real intense work you know it's not just like It's rarely. I'll say it's rarely just as simple as a, whoops, I forgot to code this thing over Mm -hmm, here. mm -hmm. Let me go plug that in and everything will be fine. But when you start to bring in the perspectives of politicians who have no familiarity with this space, while I am very glad that more politicians are interested in what is happening in this space because the implications of this work are definitely political implications, I am oftentimes dismayed at their level of unfamiliarity with what it actually takes to do this work well. Because it means that they're asking the wrong questions. It means that when they, when they go into a Senate hearing or when they go into a parliamentary study or when they go into you know commission a, a group of people to do this work, that the questions that they are asking them to answer at the outset don't fully encompass the nature of the problems Mm -hmm. that we're facing. And so, yeah, I am extraordinarily glad that more people are interested. I want, for the wider population, what I've always wanted for those of us more directly connected to this work is for us to interrogate our assumptions, ask what it is that we think we know, (laughs) what it is we do not know, and to then move forward and say okay, with what I don't know, who knows that? Who knows what I don't? What perspectives do I need to bring in that I can't account for? What kinds of questions should I be asking? And who's living those questions right now? Who doesn't have to ask those questions because they're living hmm. them immediately, right Right now, right? Like, when I looked at that, that headline from Amazon, and, and I saw the new CEO going, you know, we're going we're gonna to continue to work with uh, law enforcement on facial recognition until we see that they're, you know, whether they're abusing it. Like, the answer is not whether they're abusing it. The answer is reach out to the communities who have been actively telling you for the past mm-hmm. 10 years that they're definitely abusing it. Like, it's, it is happening. And people exist who can tell you exactly how and to some great extent why it is happening. So heed them. And, and like actually mm-hmm. take those perspectives in so that you can kind of really dig down on what it is you don't know. Yeah.
0: I mean, for that, that sounds like the language of um, what I used to see a lot more of in, and they used to be a mm-hmm. part of my talks um, on kind of AI ethics and this area where at the end of the talk, I'd be mm-hmm. like, you know, it's not good enough, right? Just to go, this is someone else's problem or like, I'm just making right. the thing. It's not really my sort of responsibility to use the thing. Right. Uh, <laughs> you you right. know, and um, you know that's yeah. that was that's never been a good enough argument. And you know, you can this goes all no. the way back to you know um, the Manhattan Project and all these sorts of you know yep. man-made um, big uh, things that we've strived for and been able to achieve. And you yeah. you are responsible for your own actions. Like there's very few instances you can get around that. And I think as an organization, that's just. That's just vulgar, I would say. Yes.
1: <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> no, that's absolutely right. No, I, I 100% agree with that. And, and you're right. that We did used to hear a lot more of the, oh, I'm just a programmer, I'm just a dev, you know, I'm just a designer, it's not my job to think about how people are going to use it on the back end. But in that same way that you're talking about in the past five years or so, people have started to realize that that's not, that's never been a good answer. Like the implications to what we do matter and we need to interrogate as many of those as we can before they come to pass we need to show that we are at least willing to think about them uh i think the last time we talked one of the phrases i used was like the kind of the lag time you know between asking the question and realizing that we needed to you know do something mm-hmm. seeing the implications of that thing and then turning around to fix it right like there's that gap in reaction time between each of those stages and one of the things that i'm still very concerned about is shortening the lag time between those things right like it has to like we can't be fully prescient about any of this stuff Mm. you know stuff happens that we can't foresee because we're doing so many things around the world as a species so much is happening all the time that they're gonna like they're gonna interact with each other in, in weird ways that we can't foresee that we can't expect That's fine, but we can reduce the amount of time it takes for us to adapt to what comes out the other side. And in order to do that, we have to be thinking about what might go wrong, what haven't I thought about, right? We have to be asking what I haven't considered because once that pops Mm -hmm. up, you're not going to have a whole heck of a lot of time to really think about it. (laughs) So you have to already be in a mode of, you know, something is going to be weird here. Something weird could always happen on the other side, And I have to be ready to think about that, to work with that, to adapt to that, and to possibly correct for it if it goes very wrong. Mm -hmm. Again, we can never be prescient. We can't ever have perfect knowledge of exactly what the work we do will look like on the other end. And no, that doesn't mean we should just stop doing all work. It means we have to do what we can as much as we can at the front end and then be prepared to do more at any point after we put it out in the world.
0: Um, So on the the cultural side um you do a lot of writing uh, around this area of um how we how we think about these sorts of technologies robots and um ai and consciousness and how these things play out in the media and all these sorts of stuff yeah. so i was wondering if you had like um a headline kind of thing that you're looking at at the moment in that space um because Mm. there's i mean there's a lot that we could talk about there (laughs) yeah Yeah.
1: there's there's always there's always a little bit there's always more Mm. um one of the things like the major things that's kind of been really interesting to watch happen uh it's the the Mm gpt3 conversation and and talking about how we you know how do we think about the kinds of outputs that can be trained on these systems and the, the 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 larger ideas of language and natural language um and how do we think about ai and automated processes that that kind of work with that language um one of the things that i think about in that space is you know people get very worried at that kind of societal cultural level about like robots are going to steal our jobs and the idea of like well what jobs are quote unquote worth having for humans um and this idea that there's always going to be some kind of automated system that kind of comes in from the background and snatches up what is supposed to be, by rights, a human field of mm-hmm. endeavor. right? Like That's always been something that uh, has animated our fears about AI, robotics, everything in that space. But one of the things that I've also seen as this has actually started to happen is that certain fields are still capable of being interrogated still capable of being uh discerned as the work of an automated you know robotic or otherwise programmed system right we can see when something is uh too perfect in a particular way uh machined too well on the kind of mechanical side of things but also we can see when it's like trying to mimic something that it gets the like the actual formal structure of, but doesn't get the full context mm. of. And so we can kind of still see that there are these places where human endeavor, the output of humans, is not really in any way endangered by this, and that we have this kind of sense of, of real understanding of, of something that makes a piece of writing or a piece of craft interesting to us but that animation of this fear is always still there. Um, that, you know, this thing is going to be able to write a paper or write an article or, you know, write a book yeah. better than a human. <laughs> and, like, it's like, ah, I, don't, I don't know that we're anywhere near there yet because it's still always about what you train it on. Like, you want to write what kind of book? Would, would you be able to train GPT-3 to write a better Lovecraft book than H.P. Lovecraft ever wrote? maybe (laughs) it would be an it would be a weird process you want to you know give it all the aldous huxley writings that ever existed and have it write like aldous huxley you might be able to to do that but is it going to be able to at this stage of what it is of functionally what it can do be trained on the full breadth and depth of all of you know literature of all of prose Mm -hmm. That humans have written in any language and then synthesize that into something that is interesting, that is functional, that is compelling. We're not there yet. We're still at a place where uh, a text that does that, if you go in and you do, uh, you know, just a a simple distribution of terms and associations, you're still in a place where it is associating words uh, on a gender-biased you know, normative kind of scale. It still has that basic level of, like, word-to-vec associations going on in the background that we've already seen very easily get gender and race encoded into them in a fundamental way. It still hasn't solved for that. So if it still can't solve for that, if it can't self-interrogate to ask that question of what, you know, if it's doing that, I mean, obviously a lot of humans still can't Mm -hmm. self-interrogate to see whether they're doing that, but, like... (laughs) You know, I can't, I still can't, as it exists, put it to the system to say, hey, you're doing some weird misogyny stuff Mm. over here. Maybe don't do that. Maybe don't associate those terms in that way all the Mm. time. Maybe don't think of the idea of what philosophy is conceptually as this kind of nonsense practice. 'Cause that's another thing that has happened, <laughs> is that like when it's told to write about certain things, it writes in a way that is pejorative to some disciplines. Because the things that it has been trained on is pejorative to those mm-hmm. disciplines. So <laughs> like it can't like it still fully can't be made to interrogate itself on yep, those levels yep. yet. So that kind of cultural animation of, like, I'm, I'm afraid that we're going to lose our jobs to these things. Like, you might lose some kinds of jobs, but those jobs are all going to be real rote. And anybody could have always done those mm-hmm. jobs. And those are not the jobs. Like, those are middle management jobs. <laughs> like, those are the jobs that, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've got somebody who uh, who's, who's worried about yeah, that kind of being a junior executive kind of mm-hmm. job, right? Like, that's that's fine but it's not necessarily the kind of thing that, you know, we're deeply concerned about. My overarching thing is, has always been really like at a certain level of automation, we should be able to just kind of like let certain things be done in the background by any system that can and wants to do them and then free up people to do the things that people actually can and want to do more broadly. Right? Like, We have things that are just interesting to us as a species. Uh, I don't mean, like, things that apply to all of us as a species. I mean things that, like, we we think are cool, that we want to be able to do. And as a species, we should be able to do those things. And we're tied to these ideas of the value of jobs, the worth of jobs. Work is interesting and important and keeps our, you know, lives meaningful, right? Like, being able to do stuff. But that stuff doesn't need to necessarily be a job. It doesn't necessarily need to be the thing that we literally depend on to live. It currently is for all of us. But there's still so much that happens in the space of of automation, of what AI, what we fear AI might do. We're still not talking about what it maybe could do, what we hope it might help us Mm. do. Why not take that space of AI is here to augment our lives, right? AI can can help us think through tasks and help us complete things and then expand on that. And the answer is currently because most of the AI applications are controlled by people who want money. <laughs> they want money and they want power. And so they're keeping those systems functional in those ways with those tools. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that way, right? Like, and this kind of gets to that kind of broader question of, if we had if we did ever come back to that dream of an autonomous generated intelligence, a real conscious machine, if we came back around to that, what would we want it to be like? What would we want it to think like? what what are the founding principles we would want it to have been built on? Because if we build it on the founding principles of Amazon, Microsoft, IBM, Facebook, Google, those are principles that are going to, you know, very possibly paperclip maximize, right? They're going to try to build profit at any cost because that's what those founding principles Mm -hmm. are. But if they're built on those marginalized perspectives that we were talking about otherwise, right? If we think instead not about that fear, but about that possibility, not about that kind of diversity inclusion pastiche, but that real marginalized representation, And we build an AGI from that perspective. We say, what lived experiences need consideration, need justice, need representation, need understanding in a way that hasn't been possible before now? That foundation, that scaffolding for a potentially conscious mind is a drastically different thing than something that's built on the idea of maximize profit at all costs. And while, again, I still think we're not quite there yet, we're not at the AGI place yet, and a lot of people, like I said, have unfortunately abandoned that goal. The, I guess the landscape of the the process is still such that whatever does get built, if we come back to that dream, is going to be built off of the work that we are doing now. The, The kinds of processes that we're thinking about now. And so I would very much like for us to think about what values we as a culture are encoding into the automated applications that we are doing right now, what it is we are afraid of and what it is we can hope for in that space.
0: Yeah. I, 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 I'm trying to think of a way some, because um, there's a lot of stuff in there. Yeah. <laughs> I like the kind of, I've got this vision in my mind that we we are all doing things now which are positive direction, um, more inclusive and uh, more thoughtful, respecting human, you know, dignity and all that sort of stuff when we're creating these things. And mm. that actually, it would be like hard to think about making a system which wasn't like that. Like in the future, if it, you know, that would that would be nice, right? Like, oh yeah, well, right. we made it like that because that's you know that's how we make stuff, right? <laughs> like. We, right. don't, we don't. We <laughs> exactly. stuff to like optimize that. like this one metric, which is cash, right? Like that. that would be that right. would be silly. Why would we be doing that? Um, <laughs> Why would we yeah. do that? Cool. <laughs>
1: yeah, it would. It would be nice to to get to that that place where that is the kind of forerunner. And I do think that more people are. Like I said, I think that more people are are actually starting to think in terms of that kind of wider and deeper kind of values mm-hmm. level than just. Maximize efficiency, maximize output of cash, right? But I still think that so many of the, excuse me, I think so many of the the corporations that do fund this work, so many of the groups that are at the, the back end that commission the designs of these tools are still putting them to the purpose of maximization of cash and efficiency. And... I think that that's a problem because one of the things that I, I've i kind of struggled with and one of the things that I really kind of like, like try to hammer home is the way that we then implement these tools, if they can learn from themselves, from their environment, from the world, if they are in fact self-adapting, if they're capable of, you know, improving themselves as they function based on what they take in, what they can discern, what they can then eliminate, if they can move through this kind of discriminative process, then they're going to learn not just from what they're encoded with, they're going to learn not just from their initial data set, but they're going to also learn from how they're implemented, how they're put out into the world, how they're made to function once they are in the world. And once they are in the world and they are functioning in particular ways, this comes back to that kind of, that facial recognition thing, right? If I point that facial recognition software at particular communities and tell that facial recognition program, hey, these particular communities tend to be more criminal than if the facial recognition software is truly autonomous. If it gets to a place of of truly being able to learn the assumptions that are encoded into it are going to meet up with the implications of its implementation, how it has been told to function, where it has been told to operate, what kind of things it will tag as suspicious to to the point where any black or brown body, regardless of what it's actually doing, is automatically tagged as potential criminal. And that kind of foundational problem, (laughs) like that baseline issue, is still the, you know, if again, if we come back to that place, if we're gonna make a we're gonna make an uh, a mind, we're gonna make a, an an intelligent machine, a conscious machine, or even if we accident into it, even if we like you know, we, we don't intentionally do it, but we create something that is complex enough and capable of self-reflection enough and capable of you know self-determination enough that it has to be considered conscious, then ultimately what it has been trained on, what it has been predisposed toward, what it has been given to think like and to think about, to work with, is going to form the basis of how it understands the world. And we got to be really careful about what it is we have given it as tools with which to understand the world.
0: That's a really good point. Um, there's a uh, episode I did with a wonderful lady um, which I can't remember her name either because I'm terrible with names Um, (laughs) uh, here we go Uh, Julia uh, Musbridge um, who who... I love Julia Julia is fantastic
1: Julia Julia and I know each other very well we've worked together on a number of
0: things and and she, (laughs) she just talking about this idea that you know there's this kind of mothership kind of thing like not a spaceship like a Mm -hmm. you know you're you're mothering you're you're teaching and you're yep and it's like you said like you can kind of teach it in a way that you're like directly giving it the capabilities right which is a technical thing yes but then you're then showing it the world and saying like let's go let's do stuff let's do the useful stuff let's not like explode the world or whatever (laughs) Right.
1: Yeah. No, and it's like, yeah, exactly that. It's the difference between giving it the capabilities of the front end versus showing it how to then use those capabilities, how to, you know, actually engage the world with its Mm -hmm. talents. And that, that's different. Those things are both very drastically important, because if you give me the innate skills to understand math, and, you know, math, chemistry, and physics, and I then decide I want to put those towards weapons making... That's very different than I, I decide I want to put those towards uh, free energy and you know the most efficient solar panel that I can mm-hmm. create, right? Like those are very different implementations of the same basic yeah. skill sets. So I have to be shown an example that I want to follow, that I'm you know given to understand is good, and the implementation of those things, the the society in which I'm steeped, the culture in which I'm steeped is in many ways that example. Now, we can push against the culture that we're born into, mm-hmm. obviously, but the more we're steeped in it without ever given cause to interrogate it, without ever given cause to question how we're raised, the harder it is for us to push back against it. And we see the implications of that in humans all the time, right? Like the older people get without ever having had their worldview questioned the harder it is for them to break out of that worldview if they are pushed against something that says, maybe don't work Mm. that way. Maybe don't hold the ideas that says that women are less than or people of certain genders are less than, uh, that, that people of certain ethnicities are less than. Maybe don't react that way. Maybe that's a bad way to be in the world. The older someone gets, the more steeped in their environment they get, the more on all sides, even at a young age... That is simply their world. When some countervailing evidence comes along, the harder it is to say, you know, include that evidence, to, to consider that evidence. And in fact, evidence shows, studies have shown, that what happens is that people actually just kind of close themselves off to any countervailing evidence the longer it goes on. They, they say, no, that can't be real. They, they ignore the reality of it. And we've seen very recently in the United States what that looks like when that happens at a wide mm. scale. When countervailing evidence that says your position has no, no tenability, no basis. It is just a, a string of cards that were holding each other up by their own weight. There's no there's no underneath here. Mm. <laughs> it's a system that, that hangs itself on itself. Here's some countervailing evidence that kind of... Maybe it can help you reframe that. Their response is, no. And not only are you a liar, but you're a conspirator in this vast conspiracy against me and mine. And then, you know, once they've done that, once you're in that space, the possibility of, like, getting Mm -hmm. them out of it is always, it's ever harder. It's not impossible, but it's ever harder. Because any evidence against the conspiracy is immediately subsumed by the conspiracy. I don't know about you, but I don't want an AI that thinks like that. Nice. (laughs) I, (laughs) I don't want a conscious machine that refuses to consider countervailing evidence and reads any and all evidence against its position, against its understanding that paperclip maximization is the best thing for humans, bar none, and says, any evidence against my position is automatically wrong. It's part of the conspiracy against me. And I paperclip maximize harder. That's not how I want it to live. But currently, the culture in which it will be implemented is a culture that is very easily tended toward that direction.
0: Yep. Um, so, um, Damien, thank you very much for your time. We're getting towards the end now. Um because I can hear little feet and things in the background. So <laughs> that's the kind <laughs> yes. of my alarm bell. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> if, if you could succinctly as possible, um, mm-hmm. we have the last question on the podcast uh, is what scares you about this technology and what excites you about it in this um, automated future that we have? Okay.
1: Um, what scares me about this is, you know, all of the potential downsides that we've talked about so far. You know, the, the exacerbation of bias, the exacerbation of injustice, the, the continual uninterrogated assumptions about what the quote-unquote right way for a person to live is that's being given to all of these systems. And then those systems then both iterate on all of those assumptions and you know, expand them out and, and make them something that we never... Really anticipated, right? Um, That that scares me, and it's happening now, and it's you know only likely to get worse if we don't really dig down and try to fix it, um, and and understand what it is we need to fix. What excites me about it, what gives me hope, is um, the fact that there are people who recognize this and who want to do that work of digging down on this. The fact that um, you know there are people in high levels of you know, the United States government as of this year who understand these mm-hmm. things, like fundamentally recognize the implications on society of technology writ large. You know that's something that we haven't ever really had before. You know, in, in the Office of Science and Technology, that was always something that was uh, focused towards STEM. It never really included, you know, social sciences. It never really took the perspective of, okay, what are the you know, if we're, we're, how do we talk about sociology in this framework? But we have that now. We have people who, who think about how human life, human values, human society impacts the technology that we make and vice versa. And that gives me great hope. And I'm hopeful that we will be able to kind of take that that beginning crack and widen it and build on it and build something that allows us to kind of really open up this conversation and do work differently in this space.
0: Wicked. Um, thank you very much for your time again. Um, it's been a, a joy to speak to you, um, as always. And um, if people want and to find out more about your work, uh, follow you, contact you, how do they do that?
1: Uh, best way to find me online is either on Twitter. I'm on Twitter as Wolven. That's W-O-L-V-E-N. Uh, I'm also at my website, about.com. And from there, either of those places, you can find contact me links, you can find my newsletter, uh, all kinds of stuff that hopefully we'll take some time to read.
0: Wicked. Thanks for your
1: time. Thank you, Ben.
0: Hello, and welcome to the end of the podcast. Thanks again to Damien. Really lovely talking again. And if you want to check out our first chat, please go to episode 24, which was the AI retreat back in 2018, I think. Also, we mentioned Julia Mossbridge. You can check out her interview on episode 30. We're looking at more stats at the moment. So as the podcast is completely uh, self-hosted, I'm having to do all that sort of stuff. And all the different stats are very convoluted and different from different platforms. I'm trying to get a handle on all the things uh, and do some programming myself on the server side to work out what's going on. Um, on the basic level we know that we get around about a thousand um, subscribers or we have around a thousand subscribers which is great so hello to you if you'd like to support us uh, some more go to patreon.com forward slash machine ethics and thanks again for listening and obviously like subscribe all that sort of jazz thanks again and i'll speak to you soon